looking at Genesis 6, and we're going to read this morning and consider what's being taught in verses 1 through 8, Genesis 6, 1 through 8, and as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. You'll again find that on page 5 in the Church Bible. And before we read God's Word, let's again go to Him in dependence, calling on Him and asking Him to help the preaching and receiving of his word this morning. Our God, again, we lift up our voices to you and we pray that you would do a great work of redemption among us. We pray that you would open the windows of heaven and that you would pour out a blessing, that you would manifest your spirit among us, that you would multiply in us the measure of your Holy Spirit, that we might know him indwelling us and applying the work of Christ to us. Please give us understanding Father, please grant us that inner illumination that comes with your saving grace. We pray that you would open every eye and and ear in this place, that you would make us to see the glories of Christ and to hear all that you would teach us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 1. And remember, we've been looking at those two genealogies, those two lines, the line of Cain and the line of Seth, the Cainites. And the Sethites and the contrast between them, we've considered most recently how Cain and his descendants were building the city of man, and Seth, the replacement seed for Abel that God gave Adam and Eve, are building the city of God. They are the godly line. They are the covenant line. They are the ones through whom the Redeemer is ultimately going to come, and that's the context in which we read these words this morning. Genesis 6, when, men, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. And it might be better translated, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, if you came this morning and you were hoping to hear a sermon about how demons came down and impregnated women and then giant warrior hybrid people were born of them, you will be sorely disappointed because I do not believe in any way whatsoever that that's what Genesis 6 is teaching us. And yet, that is a very uh, common interpretation of this passage. This is one of those passages that when you have my job, you say, wow, I have to preach this passage this morning. And yet, I think it's a passage that you're going to see at the end of this teaches us loads about ourselves, about God, about judgment, about salvation, about heart motives, about how God preserves his people, about God's grace. This passage is full, full of instruction for us. Um, It is, and this is very important for us to get at the outset, this is the prelude 
to the flood narrative. This is the prelude to why God destroyed the world with a flood. It is the reason, the rationale. This explains why did the Almighty God who formed the world out of nothing and who separated the waters and brought life and blessing, then seemingly so soon after that, cover that world again and and undo covenantal blessing and destroy with what he once brought blessing out of. Why would God do that? And Genesis 6, 1 through 8 gives us the rationale. And that's one of the things to keep in mind always is that the scriptures for the, the, the person who reads carelessly seem mythopoetic at points, seem so foreign to us, but to the person who has spiritual eyes and who reads carefully, there's always rationale and there's always teaching and instruction for us. And what we're going to see this morning, three things we're going to see first, the sin of the sons of God, and then we're going to see secondly, the sorrow, I'm sorry, and then we're going to see secondly, um, the sentence, and finally we're going to see the salvation, the sin, the sentence, and the salvation. Well, notice Genesis 6 One, we read this phrase, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, those who hold this to be uh, fallen angels who come down and they see women, it really does not make sense. The more you unpack it and And there's an attempt to try to justify that through the book of Jude that says the angels didn't keep their proper domain. And in my opinion, a misreading of a passage in 1 Peter that talks about the spirits in the days of Noah who were in prison. The word actually is spirits applying to men in the Greek. Um, And yet there would be no context. There would be absolutely no context for us to, to come to this passage and to say, here are fallen angels coming down and impregnating women. There is no reason to hold that whatsoever. In fact, if we're reading the Bible in context, we would have to say that the context is the two genealogies that God has said, keep your eyes on these. God is essentially saying to us in the book of Genesis, because the book of Genesis is a book of genealogies, and he is saying, keep your eyes on these. Remember when Cain is born, Eve names him Cain, choir, and I've acquired a man of the Lord. But when she has a third son that is important in this story theologically, and God raises up Seth, and he appoints Seth as the replacement seed for Abel, whom Cain killed, she doesn't say, I've acquired a man. She says, the Lord has given me another seed, another offspring. That goes back to the promise of Genesis 3.15, that God was going to send a redeemer, that he was going to give the woman a seed, an offspring, and, and that that seed would be the long-awaited Messiah and that he would come and he would undo everything that Adam and Eve failed to do and that he would overthrow the evil one. And, and the rest of Genesis is saying, keep your eye on that promise. And as the city of man developed and we see the effects of the fall and we see the depravity and we see Cain and his descendants building that city and we see them building for self and, and trying to take dominion for selfish purposes and building their own kingdom. And as civilization increases and, and all of the, the, the bad fruit of depravity increases back in chapter 4, God interjects that he's being gracious and he's giving another line and he's going to have mercy on people. And he has a church. He has a church. And we saw last week that Genesis 5 is a bird's eye view of that church. 
and of those men in that church that exhibit that they are living by faith and hoping in the Redeemer. And that's the context. And so it would be most natural to stick with that context and to say, therefore, what we read in Genesis 6 has that as the background, not demons coming down and impregnating women. There's no background for that. There's no context for that. So let's, for the sake of argument, say that I'm right, because I think I am. And for the sake of argument that context is king, because it is, and that context determines how we read the scriptures, we have to try to read this against the background of that. Now, there are two explanations for the two groups and what happens here in the first couple verses. The first explanation, if we're reading it against the background of redemptive history, is that the daughters of man are the Canaanites. They are the daughters, the pagan women, which by the way, seems very natural in a book written to a church that is always being warned against intermarrying with pagan nations. That's, that seems very natural, that God is everywhere telling Israel, do not intermix with the nations, because if you do, your hearts will be turned away from the Lord. And if you do, you will, you will fall into pagan practices, and then true religion will, will cease to exist, and then the Christ wouldn't come. And there's always a rationale. There's always a reason for why God says what he says. And it seems to me that this very well may be the two different groups from the two different genealogies. The daughters of men would be the, the Cainite daughters, the, the descendants from Cain, and the sons of God is the Sethites and the descendants of Seth and the covenant line. Now, what makes this difficult is that the term sons of God is only used two times in the Old Testament. Um, one time it is used of angels in the book of Job, hence bolstering the demons impregnating women view. And the other time it's used of Israel as judges. And so there's another attempt to explain where the phrase sons of God comes from and what does it mean here, and Psalm 82. It's a psalm that Jesus uh, cites to the Pharisees when they're challenging him, and he says, did I not say that you are gods? Now, what he means by that is rulers. He, he means that they were meant to be judges and rulers. They, they were meant to exercise judgment unto righteousness in the church. One of the, one of the things God gives the church uniquely is a voice, a prophetic voice to a culture that is perishing. And of all the people on the earth, who are set to make judges and to discern between good and evil, and who have the ability to discern between good and evil, it ought to be the church, because the church is redeemed, and God puts his spirit in the church, and he gives his truth to the church, and the world doesn't have that. I, I even think what we read in this passage, when we read about the giants, the mighty warriors, the Nephilim, or the Gibbelim, who were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, and we will read about um, Nimrod in chapter 10, who was a mighty warrior, and then in the book of Numbers, you'll read about these mighty warriors. These, these are pagan warriors who usurp authority, who take over cultures and civilizations, and who instead of bringing good out of the civilization, instead of seeking God's glory in their rule, are destructive and are selfish. You'll read about violence here. In verse 11, notice Genesis 6, 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. It is these mighty warriors, these men of renown. By way of contrast, the church, the sons of God should have 
should have exercised godly rule, should have seasoned and leavened the culture around them with righteous rule. Now, John Calvin, I think he's right, um, actually believes that the sons of God here are the covenant people and their descendants, and that um, God had endowed them with gifts and graces, as he often does with his people, and that they had used those gifts and graces, and that they had been put in places of authority and leadership to make wise and righteous and godly laws and, and to rule in righteousness to bring God glory. And that what happened over time was that they began seeing the Canaanite women, and they didn't just intermarry one man and one woman, but just like we read about Cain's descendants and how they became polygamous, that the, the, the covenant children were intermarrying with the world, and they were taking to themselves multiple pagan wives, and they were turning away from the truth. I think that is a very natural reading of this passage. I want to make a point of application to us because I think it's so, so significant. It grieves my heart to see professing believers not only allowing but even putting their blessing on their children marrying unbelievers. That grieves my heart. I don't care how countercultural that is. I don't care how unacceptable that is. I don't care if somebody doesn't like me saying that. It grieves my heart to see believers encouraging and allowing their children to marry unbelievers. There is, from Genesis to Revelation, there is a warning that runs through the scriptures that the way God wants to propagate truth is through a godly home and through evangelism, and that once the godly home is perverted and the marriage is perverted, the truth is lost. Now, God is not weak. God is infinitely powerful. He is in control of everything. Nothing is outside of his care. But from a human perspective, truth is lost when believers and unbelievers marry. Now, God in his kindness sometimes redeems, doesn't he? First Corinthians says that even if there's one believing parent, the children are still covenantally set apart, that God still exercises covenant care in the Christian home, even if there's only one believer. But the warnings are pervasive. They are absolutely clear and pervasive that we as believers should nurture our children to grow up, to marry godly spouses. We should be praying for that now if you have young children. If you have grown children, you should be pursuing them with that thought that they need a godly spouse. God has so blessed the Christian marriage. And, you know, um, I think now more than ever with marriage under attack, we need to hear this, you know. Uh, Russell Moore made an interesting point. He's, um, he's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, and he said, you know, the church has lost its right to argue for traditional or biblical marriage um, because we gave it up when we allowed unbiblical divorces in the 80s, when we allowed the children of believers to live in sin, and, and parents didn't say anything. And now we get up in arms. And we say, oh no, oh no, look what's happening, look how bad it is. And we didn't do anything. We let it happen, we failed on the back end. We failed as we were walking into that. And so these warnings are serious. These warnings are warnings that we need to take to heart. And, and we see that all of this denigrates and the truth is lost. And what we end up with, this is the amazing thing, what we end up with is Noah and his descendants. 
and they are the only believing family left on the face of the earth. That, that's it. You know, it's very interesting, isn't it, that the genealogy in chapter 5 ends in verse 32 with Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then here in chapter 6 it ends with Noah. It, it, it's all moving to that, and you wonder, where are the other believers? Where, where are the other families that are worshiping God. It started with Enoch. Men were calling on the name of the Lord. God was merciful with Seth. You had Lamech, the seventh down, who contrasts with the wicked Lamech in Cain's line, and he names his son in faith, and there's believing families, and it's coming down to Noah, and then there's only Noah. That's why another reason I think the demon impregnating women view doesn't hold here, because this is all showing the denigration this is showing the denigration and the turning away from God. And Noah's left. And Noah's sons and their wives and Noah's wife. There are eight. You know, Jesus makes a big deal about this. Very interesting how important the flood narrative is to the Savior. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, and the flood came on them and they were taken away in sudden judgment. So it will be in the day of the Son of Man that these in themselves were not bad things. Marriage is a good and a right and a beautiful thing, but that even those believing children, even those children of believing parents were turning away and they were just living for the pleasures of life and they were living for self. Now, I think there's also an intermingled in here, and I'm not convinced that they bore giants from these marriages. I don't think the text says that. I think it's an aside when it says there were also giants on the earth in those days. It's not saying that they had children and those children were the giants. It doesn't say that. It says that there were also these mighty giants on the earth in those days when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. And then we're told about these giants. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And then I want to remind you again of verse 11. The earth was corrupt, and the earth was filled with violence. Now, Jonathan Edwards, I think very helpfully, um, exposited this, that there was great persecution against the church, that one of the things that probably fueled the loss of the gospel and the loss of the godly home was the persecution. You know, sometimes we say persecution would be the best thing for the church. Maybe not. It may not be. There was probably great persecution against the covenant people of God, and that fueled apostasy, that they wanted the ease, they wanted to turn back. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. The believers that the writer is writing to in the book of Hebrews are being persecuted, and the temptation is, I don't want the persecution. I will turn back to the ritualism of Judaism so that I can avoid the persecution. And so you might have a number of these things going on, but here's the point that the sin is so severe that this would lead to God wiping out the entire world. That's how serious it is. That, and if I can say this in, in a simpler way, I would, but God created the world for his glory. God created the world for his church. God created the world to get a bride for his son. God, the world only exists for God's glory, for his son's glory, for the good of his church, and when the church has lost its salt, and when the, 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 the covenant people of God have turned away from him, the only thing left for God to do is to execute judgment. God is absolutely righteous. And so secondly, we see the sentence. Now, um, 
Let me read a quote to you from John Calvin I found helpful. Calvin says, God, having lovingly and patiently tolerated such perverse people, seeing that they were so incorrigible that there was no way to bring them back to the right path, employed this severity. It seems severe, doesn't it? It does. It seems severe. Why would God destroy every living thing? And what Calvin says is God had been patient. God had been long-suffering. We'll read elsewhere that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. By the way, I hate the title preacher when people say that's the preacher. It's very demeaning. When the Bible says it, it's very exalting. Very exalting. Noah was the preacher of righteousness. Noah, just like Lot after him, just like Enoch before him, was a, a, one who proclaimed God's word to a generation that didn't want to hear. And he did it for long, enduring periods of time. And he called men and women to repentance. And, and the people rejected it. God didn't just let the world just denigrate into what it did by not ever sending ministers or keeping his truth from people and keeping them in the darkness of idolatry. That men in this day so perverted their hearts that they did not want. You know, this is how severe it is. Listen to this. Notice verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, this is, this is the verse. This is the verse that you show somebody that says, I think people are pretty good. This is the verse. This is the verse that shows how wicked and sinful our hearts are. You know what's interesting about this too is that when Moses writes that and he says the Lord saw, it's not that God finally looked down and was like, oh, wow, that's terrible. (laughs) God ordains everything. God knows everything infinitely and comprehensively from all eternity. And he ordains everything that happens. What, what, What Moses is telling us is that God is teaching that he is acting in justice after a long period of patience because of the greatness of the depravity of man's heart. This is, this is really recapitulation of what we read about Cain and his descendants. Here's how you're supposed to read the Bible. Genesis 1, God creates blessing, good, beautiful, bountiful goodness. Genesis 2, garden, more blessing, more goodness, more bounty, God's with Adam. God has a plan and a purpose for man to take dominion, fill the earth. Genesis 3, the rest of human history, all the depravity, all the darkness, all the rebellion, all the blindness. And and here's the amazing thing. We have the same hearts as these people had. The same hearts. We all came from Adam. We all fell in Adam. We all have the same hearts. And what's interesting is that when God goes to pronounce the sentence, there's a contrast between what he pronounces in Genesis 1 when he looks back over creation and he says, it is good. And now as he looks at the effects of the fall and that downward spiral showing what man's heart's really like and as God pulls back the veil and says, here's what man is. Every thought of his heart, every intention of his heart is only evil continually by nature that instead of pronouncing it is good, he says that it grieved him to the heart. Now, God is not affected the way we're affected. God is not affected by our actions. He is not, he, we do not add anything to the Lord. 
We, we, do not, we do not change him in any way. God says, I, the Lord, do not change. He is eternally the same God, the triune God, every second of our lives. He is outside of time. He is not moved by anything. I remember one of the most horrific statements when um, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. Um, I'll never forget the grand the granddaughter of a very famous evangelical minister in this country said, God stepped out of the way and let the hurricane hit the city. I'll never forget how angry I was hearing that. God spun that hurricane right where he wanted it. But what we're to take away when God is pronouncing the sentence and when we're told that as he, he looks at man's heart and he, he unveils what man is really like, and when we read that he was sorry, it is as if he is saying, it is bad. It is very bad. And that's the world we live in. And that's us by nature. Um, when God pronounces this sentence, he doesn't say, because of intermarriages, I'm going to destroy the world. Because unbelievers and believers are getting married, I'm going to destroy the world. And he doesn't say, because the earth is filled with violence, I'm going to destroy the world. All of those things are true. But what God says is, because every imagination and thought of man's heart is only evil continually. God doesn't look at the outer actions. Those are just the symptoms. He says it's because of man's heart. Because man has become completely unlike what he was supposed to be. You know, I think we need a we need a healthy dose of really two things this morning and every all the time. We need to be reminded what man is really like because everybody in society wants to tell you man is better than he is. I was talking with um, one of you last night about World War II, which was um, the deadliest war recorded in human history. I think 80 million civilians and military died in World War II. That's a tremendous amount of death. 3% of the world's population at that time. Um, and as I thought about the impact of World War II, because it was hugely impacting on this country and on society as a whole, because it happens at a point when America is Disney World, and there's, there's a, a veneer of moralism in America. Everybody's smiley, happy, nice, neat, Hollywood's very clean by and large compared to what we have now. Society had sort of cleaned itself up. It's on the tail end of liberalism, which tells people you're really a good person. And, and it was fueled by that. I'm, I'm sorry if you don't like to hear that. It was fueled by theological liberalism. It was not the gospel that created that. It was a sort of a desire for cultural cleanness to appear good. And then World War II happens. And you know, even today, I'll hear people say, well, you know, how could there be a Hitler? It wasn't just a Hitler. I don't actually know that Hitler killed anybody. It was the entirety of Nazi Germany. And, and you can't say, well, that's just them. You can't say that. We've killed 50 million babies in this country. You cannot say, that's just them. This is us. This is us. We need a healthy dose of that. And the second thing we need a healthy dose of is what our sin deserves. It deserves judgment. Notice what the Lord says in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry I made them. God 
has to execute judgment. He has to. He is perfectly righteous. God doesn't decide to execute judgment. He has to. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not a tyrannical warlord. And yet God must sovereignly execute all of his wrath and judgment on men for their sins. And that means on us as well. And it means on the whole of the world. Now, thirdly, there is good news. I know you need some good news. The good news is that there's grace. In the midst of all the darkness and all the idolatry and all the violence and all the blackness of men's hearts, there is a glimmer of gospel hope. Notice the last verse, but Noah found, and it might be better translated, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What did Noah do? What did Noah do? That, that might be your question. Noah must have really worked hard to get that grace. And here's the answer. From Genesis to Revelation, Noah did nothing. God decided to be merciful to Noah. God decided to spare Noah. Now, there's multitudes of reasons for that. One of those reasons is God's going to repopulate the world after he destroys it. He's going to bring about sort of a typical new creation. And he's going to use Noah as a, a sort of a second Adam who stands as the head of a new humanity that God is going to continue to bring through. And, and God's going to carry the gospel through Noah. He's going to take that original promise of Genesis 3.15 and he's going to teach it to his sons and they should teach it to their children and they should teach it to their children. And Noah now has the opportunity to do what the sons of God failed to do. And, and that's one other reason why. And then the big reason is that God has promised to send a savior. And this may be the biggest thing you need to take away from here this morning, is that when God says he's going to do something, he is going to do it. And that means when God says he's going to destroy the world, he's going to destroy the world. And when God says he's going to send a redeemer who's going to redeem a people, God's going to do it. And God decides to show grace and mercy to Noah, and Noah believes that gospel. We're told in Hebrews 11, by faith, by faith, Noah moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. He, was, he became a man of faith by the grace of God. God saved Noah through Jesus, who had not yet come. Jesus died for Noah. That's why Noah found grace, because Jesus would come and die for Noah. Noah was a sinner. Noah had the same heart. What makes Noah different? Grace. One of my friends has a subline on his blog that he got out of a song, and um, I love it because I had never heard the song. I had never read this phrase, but I love it. It says, the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. The beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. That's not fair, exactly. Grace makes life not fair. God sovereignly said, I am going to show mercy and grace to Noah. And if you're a believer today, if you are trusting in Jesus, that same thing has happened to you. You know, what did I do to get the grace of God? I did a bunch of drugs. I ran around in deep darkness, and I loved this world. That's what I did. I get no chance to say I merited the grace of God. Nothing. I was, in, I was on my way to hell, and I found grace in the sight of the Lord. 
and he brought me to repentance, and he united me to his son, and he made me trust in his son, and he is continuing to work in me. And that's your story in whatever degree of rebellion, and it might have just been inward rebellion. You know, one of the things about, um, the, the important things about verse 5, that the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, is that you may not have acted out the way I acted out the blackness of my heart, and maybe you did, but you have the same heart. And that's what God is the judge of. On, on judgment day, every thought, every, every inner, hidden, secret, evil desire will be laid bare. The things your spouse doesn't see will be laid bare. There is no escaping that. I had a friend once that said, we're going to be cut open like a lamb and laid out for everything to be exposed on judgment day. And there will be no escaping that unless we're in Christ. And so there's hope. There's, there's hope of salvation. There's hope of a coming redeemer. Um, very interesting. Turn over to chapter, <clears throat> I believe, 8 with me. No, chapter 9. And I need to find this briefly. I'm sorry. The Lord, after destroying the world with the flood and, and after redeeming Noah and his sons, um, and Noah has come off the ark, and the first thing he does is he sacrifices. That shows that he needs a savior. You see, see, Noah doesn't think he's a good person better than other people. He's trusting God. He sacrifices. And God, as you know, spares the world. We're here today because of what this chapter says. We're sitting, you're sitting where you are because God made a covenant with Noah. And notice this. The end of chapter 8, this is, this is one of those remarkable things in the scripture that you just never get over. Notice the end of chapter 8. Notice verse 21, Noah offers a sacrifice to God, which is a picture of Jesus being offered up, points forward to him. And then verse 21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And then in the Hebrew, it's because, for, because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, it's the same statement God made when he said that was the reason why he destroyed men. Because man's heart is evil pervasively and continually, that all the thoughts of man's heart are evil, I'm destroying. And then we come on the back end of the flood and the typical new creation, and God says, I will never again curse the ground and destroy the world in the same way that I did at the flood because man's heart is evil from his youth. What, what's the point of that? Is God schizophrenic? He destroys because of man's heart. Here he says, I'm never going to destroy it again because of man's heart. Here's the point. The flood couldn't cure man's heart. That's the point. The flood waters and the judgment of the flood waters could not cleanse the heart of man. But you know what could? The blood of Jesus. And God would send that Redeemer into the world. 
and he would be descended from Noah. Jesus was, in a sense, on the ark with Noah in his loins, the Redeemer. And when you look at Jesus' genealogy, you see God unraveling his plan of redemption. And God is saying, essentially, because man's heart is pervasively evil and that all the thoughts of man's heart are evil from his youth, the only way I can change that is by sending my eternal son, who is God, in the flesh to die for them and to take that evil and that wickedness upon himself on the cross in judgment. And Jesus would be drowned in the floodwaters of God's wrath. That's, that's solidly biblical teaching on the gospel. The only way you can get a clean heart is through the blood of Jesus. I was sharing my testimony with someone on um, on Friday night, and I haven't shared it in a while, and so I enjoyed sharing my testimony with this individual. And, and I, I told him the point for me where I was converted was I was at rock bottom, and I remember just clenching my fist, and I, I didn't say, I'm going to pray to accept Jesus into my heart now. I remember, and, and I, I don't, I wasn't planning this. This wasn't, no one elicited this. The Lord was at work, and I remember just saying, Lord Jesus, I need your blood. And nobody else heard me. I was alone, and within a week, I was converted, and I had a new heart and a clean heart. And that's what God wants you to cry out for. God wants you to see that, that we are just as sinful as everybody else in this chapter, the Lord wants you to see that your heart and your thoughts are just as dark and black by nature. And God wants you to see that the only thing that can cleanse you is the blood of his son, by his grace, sovereignly given to you, that if you believe, you are just like Noah. You are righteous in Christ. You are clean. You are redeemed. You are heading for the new creation that Noah's new creation just typified. Um, I want to close with this this morning. These are heavy things. These are weighty things. Um, these are things I hope that you'll take to heart. Um, I hope as you go from this place this morning, you'll go saying, you know, my thoughts really are exceedingly sinful. And, and no matter how nice you look or how kind you are, the person I shared my testimony with Friday is a very nice person who looked at me and said, you know, I just don't believe the gospel. That, that's a person with a very dark and wicked heart. Very nice person. Doesn't matter. Does not matter. Reckon with the fact that God sees all of our thoughts, all of our affections, all of our passions. He has all of them recorded. And if you're not in Christ, the only inevitable end will be judgment. That is the inevitable end. It will be judgment forever. You will never, ever escape the judgment of God unless you come to Jesus and unless you get your heart cleansed in Christ and unless you see that that sin, those evil thoughts need to be put on him and he needs to be punished for them and he needs to be destroyed. You know, very interesting. God says he's going to wipe out every living creature on the earth. You know what God does? God wipes himself out on the cross in Jesus. He, he wipes the Son of God out and then he brings him back to life again 
And when he steps out of that tomb, he steps out and breathes the air of the new creation. And if you're in Christ, you are safe. You are safe. The flood waters have already crashed down around the Lord Jesus. I hope that you'll be encouraged to go to the Lord and to reckon honestly with him about where you are and whether you've received his grace or not. And if you have received his grace, I hope that you'll take deep comfort in the fact that Christ was wiped out so that you might be redeemed. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, these, again, we acknowledge are weighty things, and we pray that you would help us to take them to heart. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us grace to, um, to trust you, grace to hope in your salvation, grace to believe in the righteous judgment of God, grace to accept this testimony. We pray, our God, that you would um, make every man and woman and boy and girl in this room safe in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would manifest your grace and your favor to everyone in this place. We pray, our God, that you would make us men and women who would raise our children to love the scriptures and love the gospel and to turn from the wrath to come. Our God, we pray that you would accomplish your purposes in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.